morning. I'm Sheila. Please turn with me to John chapter 13. Before I read aloud this passage, please pray with me. Lord, our prayer is like the boy Samuel who prayed, Speak, Lord, your servant is listening. Yet we have ears that are blocked, eyes that are blind, hearts that are cold. We need the continual work of God, Holy Spirit, to illumine our minds and hearts so that we may understand what is being read and preached to us today. And as we listen with understanding, give us the strength to apply your word into our lives as we make everyday choices to live for you and not ourselves, that we may be the hands and feet of Christ. We love you, Lord. Help us to love you more. Amen. This is John chapter 13, verses 1 to 17. It was just before the Passover feast. Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and to go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. The evening meal was being served, and the devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, You do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Peter answered, Unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then Lord, Simon Peter replied, Not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, A man who has had a bath needs only to wash his feet. His whole body is clean, and you are clean, though not every one of you, for he knew who was going to betray him, and that was why he said not everyone was clean. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? he asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so. But that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. I tell you the truth. No servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. This is the word of the Lord. Morning, everyone. 
So if you don't know me, my name is Roy, and yeah, I work here at church along with Matt and Mitch and Steph. Uh, So I heard some good advice the other day, and here it is. Your job in teaching the Bible is to take the seemingly complicated, difficult passages and show how straightforward they are and to take the seemingly straightforward, simple passages and show how rich and deep they are. So it seems like good advice, right? And I think today's passage from John 13 qualifies as one of the seemingly straightforward ones. If you're from an even vaguely Christian background, then you know, yeah, Jesus washed his disciples' feet, and that means that you know, you should be willing to do the lowly, thankless tasks as well. But I want us to see today how this famous passage is more than just good advice about how we should treat one another, but it is actually bursting with good news about how Jesus treats us. John 13 is pregnant with the great news about who Jesus is and what he has done. So in order to do this, we're going to work through our text today with just three points in mind. Firstly, love declared. Secondly, love demonstrated. And thirdly, love dispensed. So first of all, love declared. So chapter 13 marks the beginning of a scene which runs all the way until the end of chapter 17. Here begins a five-chapter block consisting of the final teaching of Jesus delivered to his disciples before his crucifixion. If you've got a red-letter Bible, it's just like all red. It's just Jesus talking pretty much the whole time. Uh, So in in this section, Jesus' love for his own is shown forth, and we can think of this whole section as Christ's final love love gift to the disciples before he departs to be with his Father. So maybe this is why the hour mentioned here is verse 1, the hour for him to leave this world and go to the Father. So by referring to the hour like this, John sets the scene for the next five chapters of the teaching of Jesus in the context of his great love for his own, a love which Jesus would have for his disciples until the very end of his life. Verse 1 again, he loved them to the end. In this context of the great love of Christ, the next verse is kind of jarring. So look at verse 2. The devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. So there is a clear contrast here between the love of Jesus in verse 1 the love which is concerned for others until the end, and the self-interested plotting of Judas in verse 2, plotting which looks to betray others, plotting concerned with only its own ends. But consider another aspect of this contrast. Judas is, on some level, under the power of Satan. Verse 2 says he was prompted by Satan. But Jesus is given power by his Father. Verse 3, 
Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power. And there's, there's one more contrast here. So Jesus came from God. Verse 3 says it plainly. He had come from God. Jesus is the Son of his Father in heaven. Jesus came from above. But Judas comes from where? Verse 2 says he was the son of Simon Iscariot. Judas was the son of a mere man of the earth. Judas comes from below. So the first few verses of chapter 13, they set up this dichotomy between the epitome of love revealed in Christ on the one hand, the man who comes from heaven, the man empowered by the goodness of the God who dwells above the earth, and on the other hand, we see the epitome of hatred revealed in the scheming of Judas, the man from the earth, the man under the power of satanic forces from below the earth. Now, Judas is an interesting character in the Bible, isn't he? He's kind of hard to get your head around. We wonder at how he can be such a villain. He was chosen as a disciple by Jesus. He followed Jesus for three whole years. He saw the water turn to wine, the feeding of the 5,000, the resurrection of Lazarus, and all the rest of the signs. He was loved by Jesus and taught by Jesus. He's about to have his feet washed by Jesus, and yet he will completely betray Jesus. Judas is the quintessential bad guy villain. Worse even than an enemy is a traitor. Now, so we've got a lot of young mums and dads here in this church. I wonder, when you were brainstorming names for your little bundle of joy, did any of you consider the name Judas? No? Well, why not? It's, it's not such a bad name. It's short, it's punchy, it's biblical, it's easy to remember. Little Judas Marcelo. Or Judas Fernando. It's got a nice ring to it. No, it's, it's not a good name, is it? It's no good because of the baggage associated with it. Have you even met someone named Judas? And what would you think if you did? Probably the only worst name is Adolf. And so when we read about Judas in the Bible, we rarely, if ever, think of ourselves as being like him. He's the bad guy. We aren't like him. We concede that we are probably like the dopey disciples who have such faltering faith. Maybe we're even like Peter who denies the Lord three times. But never like Judas. Heaven forbid that we should be like Judas. But here in John 13, we should recognize that Judas, the betrayer, the man from below, the man inspired and animated and prompted by Satan, well, he is simply the worst example of one of the disciples. He's the worst of a bad bunch, but he's still part of the bunch. And this is, this is kind of made clear if we consider the other gospel accounts of this scene. So, John 13, verse 2 says that the evening meal was in progress. This evening meal was the Last Supper recorded in all four of the Gospels. 
in Luke's account, it is clear that the dinner table talk which was happening amongst the disciples on this night was a discussion about who was the greatest. So Luke 22, verse 24. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was considered the greatest. So the contrast presented here is not just between the condescending love of Jesus and the self-interested plotting of Judas, but between the love of Jesus and the self-interested plotting of all the disciples. Judas is nearly the epitome of that satanically inspired self-interest. So, recognizing this contrast that John's drawing for us, recognizing the context, the imminent death of Jesus on the cross, and Jesus' intention to spend his last hours in loving service to his disciples, instructing them and teaching them and giving to them his final love gift, five long chapters of intimate and personal teachings, even as they bicker over who is the greatest, even as Judas, the worst of the disciples, plots to murder him. Recognizing all this, what happens next should be all the more jarring, because what happens next is more than simply declaring his love for them, Jesus demonstrates it. He acts it out in what would have been to them the most shocking way possible. And this is our second point, love demonstrated. Verses 4 to 5. So Jesus got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Now, what is striking to me is that verse Four says that the meal had already begun because the expectation in the first century was that they should all have washed their feet before reclining for supper. But it seems that whilst engaged in this bickering about who was the greatest, even common courtesy had gone out the window. And this has got to be a low point for Jesus. After years of teaching the disciples, guiding them, explaining to them that the first will be last and the last first, that those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted, that the kingdom of God is not like the kingdom of this world, well, the disciples are still entrenched in this worldly ways of thinking. They are still under the sway of forces originating from the earth and below the earth. Now, knowing all this, knowing that in a few short hours he would be crucified, knowing that not just Judas, but the rest of the disciples too, were at least on some level animated and inspired by Satan, knowing that he is the Son of God in heaven and that all things are under his power, what does Jesus do? He gets up from the meal, he removes his robes, he takes the posture of a servant and he does the lowliest and grottiest job around. He cleans the feet of 12 first century men. Now consider for a moment how this passage echoes Philippians 2. So from verse 5. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, 
who, being in very nature God, did not consider something, I'm sorry, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. So John 13 verse 3 says, Jesus had all things under his power and he came from God. Philippians 2 verse 6 says he was in very nature God. John 13 verse 4 says he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing and wrapped a towel around his waist. Philippians 2 verse 7 says he made himself nothing by taking the nature of a servant. John 13 verse 5 says Jesus began to wash the disciples' feet. Philippians 2 verse 8 says he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death. He became the means by which the disciples could be washed by his blood. And finally, John 13 verse 12 says, when Jesus had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. He returned to his place of privilege. He is the rabbi after all. Philippians 2 verse, verse 9 says, Therefore God exalted him to the highest place. When Jesus had completed his work of dying and rising from the dead, he returned to his place of privilege at the right hand of the Father in heaven. So Jesus washing the feet of the disciples in verse 5 is a demonstration of John's declaration of Christ's love for them in verse 1. But it's also a kind of encapsulation and summation of the entire life and ministry of Jesus. It is a kind of encapsulation and summation of the gospel, of the person and work of Jesus, of who Jesus is and what he has done. Jesus comes from heaven down to us, feral, dirty, satanically animated children of our father, the devil, whilst we are neck deep in our own sin and happily rolling around in it, with it driving our every desire and action. He comes to us in that precise moment in which we are the most unlovable, and he serves us. He both declares and demonstrates his love for us. He washes us clean. Romans 5 verse 8, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. But this foot washing in John 13, it's, it's actually more than a demonstration. It's more than an example. It is an example, of course. Look at verse 15. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. It does have a very strong moral, exemplary component. There is an imperative here. 
Jesus condescending to wash the grubby feet of his disciples is very clearly an example for us to emulate in all sorts of ways. If the Lord of glory is willing to take this posture and do the lowliest work, then we should not be too proud to refuse to follow in his footsteps. So this is why here at VPP we're keen for everyone to be serving in some capacity, that we have no passengers. Because when we come to church, it's not just about what we can get out of it, but how we can serve others. Now, the funny thing about this is that we want to be a church with everyone serving, not only out of obedience and gratitude to Christ, although that is critically important, but we also want that for you because we think it's how you were made to operate and it will contribute to your own well-being and fulfillment. So I'm actually I'm a pretty good example of this, I think. Uh, it may or may not surprise you to know that I'm totally useless at running my own life. Um, me trying to run my life is kind of like trying to drive a complicated truck that I'm totally underqualified to drive. But in seeking to serve others in the ways God has equipped me to serve, I like almost managed to keep the truck on the road and out of the ditch most of the time. I vaguely resemble something approximating a functional human being. And on top of that, I experience fulfillment and meaning in places I would never look for it on my own. Often, the things Jesus tells us to do are the things that are good for us, just as much as they are good for others. Okay, so this foot washing, it, it is an example for us, but it's not just an example. It's not just a demonstration of the love which John declared in verse 1 because it is also a dispensing of that love. So this is our third point, love dispensed. So look at what Jesus says in verse 7. You do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. He is saying that this foot washing is symbolic of something more. Something is being cleaned other than just dirt and dust and toe jam. Jesus is saying that this cleansing is sacramental. Now, I don't mean sacrament as in sacrament with a capital S. We're not commanded to literally practice foot washing in the church gathering alongside baptism and the Lord's Supper. I mean sacramental in a wider sense. I mean sacramental as in an outward visible symbol of an inward invisible reality. An outward visible symbol of an inward invisible reality. We can see this in verse 8 where Jesus says, Unless I wash you, you have no part with me. In this act of cleansing the dirtiest external part of the disciples' bodies, the part which is contaminated by the dirt and dust from below, Jesus points forward to something more. He points forward to the necessity of his death in which his blood would be poured out to wash the dirtiest internal part of their bodies, their dark hearts, which are so contaminated by the spirit that comes from below. So the word translated here in verse 8 as part 
is the word meros in the original, in the original language. It's where we get our modern word for mermaid. You can kind of hear it, meros, mermaid. And we all know what a mermaid is, right? It's a creature which is part woman, part fish. It's like two creatures joined together to become one. It's also where we get the word merge, like how two companies might merge together. It can also carry with it the idea of inheritance. So meros can mean share or endowment. Just like if you marry someone, you become one with them, you merge with them, and you gain rights to their property. What's theirs is yours, and you have a share with them. And Peter grasped this immediately. Verse 9. Then Lord, Simon Peter replied, wash not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. He's all in, straight away. If this washing means to be one with his Lord, to have a part with him, a share, then Peter wants it to the max. Now, it's, it is kind of hard to know if this is genuine love for Jesus here or just another expression of desire to be the greatest. It could well be a bit of both. Whatever the case, Jesus sees the need for correction in verse 10. He says, Those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean, and you are clean. So this is obviously not a literal statement, right? It's another hint that there is more going on here than just physical cleansing. What Jesus means here is that once I have washed your dirtiest part, you need no more washing. And what comfort verse 10 should be to us. Now, we have all kinds of reasons to have certainty of our salvation. The internal witness of the Spirit, the historical reality of the resurrection of Jesus. The words earlier in John's Gospel where he says, All those the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever he gives me I will never drive away. The words of Paul in Romans 10, Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. The words of the writer to the Hebrews about the full assurance faith brings. The entire epistle of 1 John, written so that you might know that you have eternal life. But even so, can you imagine what it would mean to be told by Jesus himself in the flesh that you are clean? You don't need a bath. Your whole body is clean. Well, if you are someone who, like Peter in verse 9, recognizes that you are dirty, someone who recognizes your need of cleansing, someone who desires to be one with Christ, then you too should take great comfort from verse 10. If you recognize that you are a person from below, that you are a person animated and motivated and infected by twisted and perverted desires, and you cry out to Jesus, wash not just my feet, but my head and my hands as well, then in this text, Jesus says to you today, you are clean. Do you feel clean? It doesn't matter. You have sin and defilement and depravity in your past. It doesn't matter. Have you been slimed on or debased or degraded it doesn't matter. 
Have you rolled around in the muck of this world and enjoyed it? It doesn't matter. Christ says to you today, you are clean. However, there is a warning here too, because verse 10 does continue. You are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him, and that was why he said not everyone was clean. Now here I want you to see the difference between Judas and the rest of the disciples. Here Jesus says very clearly that 11 of the disciples are clean, but Judas is not. 11 of them are in right standing with him, but Judas is not. All 12 disciples are men of the earth, men born from below, men with merely human fathers, men who are motivated by this worldly desires, men who are at least in some measure animated by the spirit which is from below. All 12 disciples have dirty feet. All 12 disciples are contaminated by the dirt and the dust they walk around in all day long. All 12 disciples are from the world and influenced by the world. But only one of them is a betrayer. Only one of them will give himself over entirely to Satan. And only one of them will be lost. So there is a distinction to be made. Judas may be merely the epitome of the plotting and the self-interest which originates from below, which on some level characterizes all the disciples and all of us too. But here Jesus is saying that despite the similarities between the self-interested disciples and Judas, there is a fundamental difference. Eleven are clean and one is not. Eleven need Jesus to wash the dirt off their feet, which they pick up in the world day to day. But one is totally given over to the world, still filthy from head to toe. The distinction between Judas and the eleven is not just one of degree, but of kind. The dirt which clings to the feet of the disciples is very different to the, to the dirt which covers the whole of Judas. So what's the litmus test? How can we evaluate ourselves to see if we run the risk of being the dirty one? Well, this is quite simple. Do you believe the gospel? Is Christ truly your Lord? Now, before we saw the similarities between the flow of this passage and of Philippians 2, we saw how in this passage, Jesus condescending to wash the feet of the disciples is a kind of encapsulation and summation of the gospel, of the person and work of Jesus, of who Jesus is and of what he does at the cross. Christ has consented to, condescended to enter into our grubby, sinful lives and he has met our greatest need in washing us clean. At the cross, God's great love for us has been declared God's great love for us has been demonstrated and God's great love for us has been dispensed. And the simple question is, do you believe this? Do you believe that Jesus is God from God, light from light, true God from true God? Do you believe that his death on the cross paid for your sins and by faith 
in him you are washed clean. Do you believe that Jesus rose from the dead, ascended to heaven, and is right now on the throne? Do you believe that he will one day come to judge the living and the dead? In short, is Jesus your Lord? It really is as simple as that. If so, then hear these words today. You are clean. Now, that is not just good advice. That is good news. Amen.